You know by now, patrons heard this episode first. Our patrons enjoy ad-free, early access to regular episodes and a bonus episode every month. They also get a shout out. Thank you so much to Courtney and Ashley for becoming our newest patrons. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod to join now or click the link in our show notes. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. Into thin air, without a trace, disappeared. These are all common phrases used when reporting on a missing person. And with today's case, they're accurate. Over 20 years after the initial disappearance, investigators are no closer to finding answers than they were when the case was first opened. His name is Brian Schaefer. This is his story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Brian Randall Schaefer was born on February 25th, 1979 to parents Renee and Randy Schaefer. Younger brother Derek completed the family when he arrived a couple years later. The family lived in Baltimore, Ohio, and Brian graduated from nearby Pickering High School in 1997. He went on to get his bachelor's from microbiology from Ohio State University and then started medical school at OSH. Brian earned excellent grades and was on track to fulfill his dream of becoming a doctor. While in medical school, he met Alexis Wagoner, who was in the same class. The two began dating and things were getting serious. The couple had planned a trip to Miami, Florida for spring break, and it's thought that Brian was planning on proposing while they were on vacation. Tragically, when Brian was studying at medical school, his mother, Renee, was diagnosed with myodysplasia. Myodysplasia is also known as myodysplastic syndromes. According to the National Cancer Institute, Myodysplastic syndromes are a group of cancers in which immature blood cells in the bone marrow don't mature or become healthy blood cells. In a healthy person, the bone marrow makes blood stem cells, which are also called immature cells, that eventually become mature blood cells over time. The prognosis wasn't positive, and the cancer took over faster than Brian thought it would. Sadly, Renee lost her battle with the rare cancer on March 6, 2006 at the age of 51. She was farewelled in a memorial service on March 10th before being interred at Maple Grove Cemetery. As the matriarch of the family, her loss profoundly impacted the Schaefer men. Brian was understandably devastated by the death of his mother, whom friends reported was his hero and confidant. He wrote on his MySpace page, my mom was the greatest, most wonderful person in the world. Randy, Derek, and Brian became closer than ever after Renee's death with Brian calling to check in on his little brother more often than before. A few weeks after Renee was laid to rest on March 31st, Brian was trying to regain some normality. Spring break had just started and he was due to go on vacation with his girlfriend in a couple of days. He saw his dad to offer company and comfort over a steak dinner at Outback Steakhouse. And Randy noted that Brian seemed worn out. Brian had been pulling all-nighters, studying for exams, as well as grieving for Renee. Randy said his son was composed despite the obvious exhaustion he must have been feeling. Brian had called Derek asking to meet up with him. Derek had been at a comedy club in Columbus with his then-girlfriend and now-wife, and the show had run late so they decided not to go out with Brian. Instead, Brian went out with some friends bar hopping and celebrating the beginning of spring break. The night started around 9 p.m. at the Ugly Tuna Saluna where Brian met up with his former roommate and current drinking buddy, Clint Florence. 
the ugly tuna whose neon sign read Fresh Fish, Ugly Owners, was popular with college students. It was located near the OSU campus and their themed nights and drink specials appealed to the college demographic. The bar was located on the second floor of a brick building in the Gateway University District on Columbus's North High Street near the south end of campus. Although the area was known for being increasingly dangerous, the bar was advertised as an upscale and trendy place. Clint said it was a normal night, nothing out of the ordinary. As usual, they started a tab and did a few shots of liquor before moving to another bar in the arena district, then on to one in Short North. At the bar in Short North, the men met up with Meredith Reed, a friend of Clint's. Meredith offered the men a ride back to the Ugly Tuna, which they accepted as they'd both had quite a few drinks at this time. During this night out, Alexis, who was visiting her parents in Toledo, called Brian to check in around 10 p.m. They said, I love yous and hung up. Nothing was out of the ordinary with this conversation and Alexis had no idea that would be the last time she would ever talk to Brian. Once back at the Ugly Tuna, security cameras captured Brian, Clint, and Meredith riding the escalator at 1.15 a.m. Brian was leaning against the handrail in this footage. Once inside, they spoke to a couple college-age women that Clint knew. Then at 1.55 a.m., security footage captures Brian standing outside the bar chatting to the woman he met in the bar. He appears to say goodbye and walks away out of frame, never to be seen again. Police would later say that it appeared as if he was going back into the bar, but no one reported seeing him. Clinton Meredith said that they were getting ready to leave and couldn't find Brian anywhere, not in the bar or the bathroom, and he wasn't answering his cell phone. Clinton Meredith then decided to leave without him, assuming he had made his own way home. They continued to call his phone, but it kept going to voicemail. Randy and Alexis called Brian all weekend, but the calls went unanswered. In fact, his cell phone and credit cards weren't used after he was last seen. Alexis went to Brian's apartment, hoping to find him there, but the apartment full of Brian's things was deserted. Alexis stayed there hoping Brian would show up at home, but he didn't. By Sunday morning, Alexis was very worried. She hadn't heard from Brian in over 36 hours and they were due to fly out for Miami the next morning. After he missed the April 3rd flight, he was reported missing to the police. Derek was informed that Brian was missing. He went straight to Brian's apartment and he saw that the lights were on. Hopeful, he went inside, but was crushed when he found Alexis there waiting for Brian to come home. Alexis said she went to Brian's apartment regularly after he went missing curling up in Brian's bed and just breaking down in tears. Police, of course, interviewed witnesses and checked the security footage at the Ugly Tuna, the last place Brian was seen. As previously mentioned, the camera saw him talking to a couple of women, appearing to say goodbye and then move out of frame, appearing to go into the bar. But he wasn't seen in the bar and neither security camera showed him leaving the building that night. There was a camera that covered the escalator and this is the one Brian was seen on as he arrived. He could have left using the stairs or the elevator, neither of which are covered by the camera on that floor. However, there was a camera covering the main exit on the ground floor. The only way to exit the building without being seen by a camera was via a service entrance that Brian had no reason to use. And that exit led to a construction site, an area ripe with danger and hazards. Another camera covered an emergency exit, but he wasn't seen slipping out that way either. And yeah, it is possible that a camera just missed him. 
One of them panned the area while another was operated manually. However, everyone else who was filmed entering the building that night was also filmed leaving it, which makes the possibility that he avoided all cameras fairly remote. On top of that, the area around the Ugly Tuna had a lot of bars and eatery with their own surveillance cameras. And Brian wasn't seen on any of them either. Could he have changed clothes, put on a hat, or otherwise obscured himself so he looked different leaving than he did arriving? And thus, investigators saw him but didn't know it was him? It's possible, but not probable. Where would he have gotten new clothes or a hat from? He went into the bar empty-handed. And it's highly unlikely that he changed clothes with someone or had spares stashed in the bar waiting for him. Brian's car was found left in his apartment parking lot, which is a half-mile walking distance from the Ugly Tuna. Which begs the question, if he'd left to go somewhere, wouldn't he have taken his car? Brian's loved ones really were confused by his disappearance. His brother Derek said he didn't think Brian would have ever left voluntarily. During the initial investigation, up to 50 police officers at a time searched for Brian. Starting at the Ugly Tuna in Brian's apartment on the 200 block of King Avenue, officers moved in a concentric pattern as they canvassed neighborhoods, knocked on doors, and searched dumpsters in the hopes that they would find a clue or a witness that might give them a direction. Homeless shelters and hospitals were checked, but there was no sign of Brian. Following the tips and vague leads that they did get led them to local landfills and riverbanks, and the city was eventually persuaded to check sewer lines. Neither the officers nor the canine unit found any trace of Brian. Investigators questioned Brian's friends and family, not shying away from awkward topics like potential drug use or even enemies who would wish Brian harm. These questions didn't yield any information, as Brian was a well-liked person who studied hard and didn't have a drug habit. The people he was with the night he disappeared were also questioned. The two women were interviewed and cleared. Clint, whose full name is William Florence, was interviewed as well. However, it's noted that he refused to take a polygraph both times he was asked to, even though many of Brian's friends and family submitted to polygraphs, including his own father. Clint's lawyer said that he told his client not to submit to a lie detector test as he didn't have anything new to tell investigators and he had been cooperative, saying, as far as Clint is concerned, this matter is closed. Brian, who had a Pearl Jam tattoo and was a massive fan of the band, even had his case talked about by the lead singer at a concert in Cincinnati. The band had heard about this band who'd vanished without a trace and wanted to bring awareness to the case. The band would later play a concert at Columbus's Nationwide Arena, and they dedicated their song, Come Back, to Brian. In May of 2006, a few weeks after Brian went missing, his apartment was broken into. Family and friends hoped that it was connected to the disappearance and wondered if it would provide new evidence to help investigators focus their search. Police conducted an investigation and concluded that it wasn't connected to the disappearance and it didn't lead them to any new information about the case. In fact, by this time, Columbus police had no idea what happened to Brian, despite an extensive and exhaustive investigation. Sergeant John Hurst, the lead investigator, said that Brian's credit cards, bank accounts, and cell phone had not been used, and Brian hadn't been recorded on the passenger list of any flights or buses. At this point, the police were openly speculating that Brian may have been the victim of foul play. They pointed to his drinking the night of his disappearance and theorized that he was likely quite intoxicated. 
If he had decided to walk back to his apartment six or so blocks away, he could have been an easy target. Police pointed to the fact that there was a significant amount of crime in the area. Alexis Wagoner, Brian's girlfriend, called his cell phone every night for months, hoping against hope that Brian would answer the phone and say he was okay. Every night, the call went straight to voicemail. That is, until one night in September when the phone rang. It rang three times. It's unclear how the call was disconnected, but it was, so Alexis called again. Once again, it went straight to voicemail. Although they couldn't trace its exact location because the phone wasn't GPS-enabled, police were able to find out the call pinged off at Sal Tower in Hilliard, which is about 14 miles from Columbus. The cell phone company would later say that there was likely a glitch in their system that caused the rings and the ping rather than the phone being briefly turned on. A year on from the disappearance and Brian's case was growing cold. Investigators had no new leads and nothing came of the hundreds of tips and sightings and leads that had been reported before. A reward was offered starting at 25000 and increasing to 100000 which may have encouraged those dead-end tips to keep coming in. Brian's credit cards and cell phones remained untouched. He literally had disappeared into thin air. Randy Bryan's father, who lost his wife and his son in the span of a few weeks, struggled to cope with the enormity of what his family went through. He dedicated his life to searching for Brian and was described as rabid and relentless. Randy campaigned for a law change. And along with the parents of other local missing persons and Crime Stoppers president, Kevin Miles, he helped the Ohio legislature pass a missing adults bill that established statewide protocols for detectives. Up until then, missing adult reports were handled on a case-by-case basis that lacked consistency. He made public pleas for information about what happened to Brian. He wanted to remind the public about Brian's case as often as he could, so it would be front of mind for as many people as possible. Randy put missing posters up all over the city. He organized vigils and he organized and led searches. He was out looking for his son, wading through riverbeds, tirelessly searching for answers. Randy was drawn to the Alentangy River because a psychic believed Brian was in water being held down in a whirlpool near the base of a concrete bridge post. The Alentangy River was less than a mile from Brian's apartment, so it was a logical place for Randy to search. Not long after getting the tip, Randy called his brother Tim. They both got some waiters, then they called Kevin Miles and went to the river. Randy spent hours searching the river, going from bridge post to bridge post, hoping to see something in the cloudy water. And at one point while peering into the river, he slipped and fell into the swirling water. And thankfully, his brother pulled him to safety before he went under. On the evening of September 14th, 2008, tragedy struck the Schaefer family for the third time in as many years. It's thought Randy may have been walking to a shed in his backyard during a windstorm when a tree limb fell on Randy, killing him instantly. He was only 55 years old. Neighbors found his body the next morning and reported his death. Seven people in total perished during the storm and the cleanup that followed. A few days later, Randy's obituary was published on the Columbus Dispatch website, and it listed Brian as surviving his father. As with most online obituaries, there was a space for mourners to leave a comment. And this is where it gets a little weird. One of the comments grabbed the attention of the police because it said, Dad, I love you, love Brian, with U.S. Virgin Islands in parenthesis. Was this a sign that Brian was okay? That he had run away from his life and started fresh in the tropics? 
Brian had certainly dreamed of a life where he could drink cocktails on the beach while listening to Jimmy Buffett, something I'm sure a lot of us fantasize about. But did Brian follow through? Reportedly, Brian had always said that he wanted to start a band and that med school was his plan B. Something to consider is he would have been able to get to the U.S. Virgin Islands without a passport because you only need a driver's license, which he had on him when he disappeared. But any hope created by this comment was short-lived. For one, even without a passport, Brian's name would still have been on a flight manifest if he had flown out of Columbus. And the police traced the comment to a public computer in Franklin County, nowhere near the U.S. Virgin Islands. This was just a cruel prank that someone had played, an internet wild goose chase that built false hope and wasted police time. Around the same time, another tip came in, telling police that Brian's body could be found in a field not far from Columbus. But after a search of the field and surrounding area by both personnel and canines, it proved to be fruitless. So the question remained, where could Brian have gone? As with all missing persons cases, there are theories and rumors. You know, at the Murder Diaries, we like to stick to facts as much as possible. However, we would be remiss to not address the theories that have been debated about Brian's disappearance over the years. One theory is that Brian left the Ugly Tuna building via the exit that led to the construction area. It would have been dangerous for a sober person in the daylight. So an intoxicated person in the dark could have run into some serious strife there. However, this theory has been quickly debunked because there's been no evidence that Brian was injured or killed there. There was no blood, ripped clothing, nothing to indicate he had become injured there. And if he had been injured or killed, wouldn't construction workers have found a body? Another common theory is that after the stress of losing his mother, coupled with exams and med school, Brian ran off to start a new life. However, if that's the case, why would he leave everything behind at his apartment? even his glasses, which he would have needed. And let's not forget the fact that his phone was never used again and his bank accounts were never touched. Disappearing at 2 a.m. after a night of drinking doesn't imply there was planning or forethought. In the nearly two decades since Brian has been missing, there have been no credible sightings of him. With a case as publicized as his has been, it would be hard for him to adopt a new identity and hide in plain sight, which is why authorities don't believe he left on his own accord. Of course, the Schaefer family and investigators had to consider that Brian ended his own life. But this is another theory that isn't thought to be credible. Although Brian was upset and grieving for his mother, he seemed to be handling the loss as well as anyone could hope. And he had been making plans. Because of all of this, lead investigator Detective John Hurst doesn't believe it's high on the list of likely explanations. The last theory is that Brian met with foul play. Police briefly thought that Brian may have been the victim of a serial killer. And with nothing solid to go on, many armchair detectives started to theorize about who that could have been. And eventually speculation about the smiley face killer began. This serial murderer is said to have been responsible for at least 40 killings. The victims were intoxicated college-age men in the Midwest. Their bodies were thrown into rivers and near each body was a spray-painted smiley face. Police openly debunked this theory, saying that no smiley face was found on the bank of the Olentangy River, and there was no evidence that Brian was in the river along with no evidence that he was even dead. The FBI has since conducted its own investigation into the smiley face killer, and they aren't sure that the killer exists at all. The most recent lead came in 2020 when a man in Mexico who resembled Brian was photographed and the picture was sent to the FBI. Using facial recognition software, it was determined that the person was not Brian, and the lead was not pursued further. 
While no one has forgotten Brian's disappearance, the investigation has grown cold from a lack of leads and evidence. Although the files associated with Brian's case fill four boxes at the Columbus Missing Persons Unit, nothing inside has gotten investigators any closer to a break in the case. In 2021, Columbus police released an age progression photo of what Brian may look like now. They hoped that the photo would bring in new leads, and if Brian was still alive, someone might recognize him. The people in Brian's life have done their best to live their lives despite being under a dark cloud of doubt. Brian's brother Derek was married in 2009 and has started a family. He holds out hope that one day he'll have answers about what happened to his brother. Alexis also married in 2009 and has a couple of children and a successful medical career. If Brian's still alive, he would be 44 years old. He's a Caucasian male with light brown hair and hazel eyes, and there's a black spot on his left iris. He's 6'2 and was 165 pounds at the time of his disappearance. He was last seen wearing an olive green short sleeve polo shirt over a white long sleeve shirt, blue jeans, white Adidas sneakers, and a yellow rubber cancer awareness bracelet. He also has a Pearl Jam symbol on his right bicep. If you have any information concerning Brian's case, please contact the Columbus Police Department at 877-645-8477. That's 877-645-8477. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.